So you're going to see in a few moments that today's episode is going to talk a lot about education. Not only Ron DeSantis' current stance on education in Florida, but also the time that he spent as a teacher in Georgia, which is something that isn't talked about much by him and by a lot of people surrounding him. So before we get into that, I'm reminded of this conversation I had recently with a friend of the pod who is a teacher, and he was kind of doing that thing that teachers do sometimes, the righteous venting about how teachers don't get paid enough for what they do. And that drove him to talking about a friend of his who became an engineer out of college. And he was telling me exactly what this engineer friend does. And I found it kind of comical, even though all my chuckles are being taken to the bank by this engineer. Because what he does is he works on the machines that are responsible for putting the perforations in toilet paper that make it easy to tear. And he not only works on those machines, but he travels around the world and teaches other companies how to work on those machines. And this reminded me that toilet paper is, I mean, the pandemic showed us just how important it is, but it also made me think that it's a bit of a waste that these machines are only used for toilet paper. I mean, after all, Ron DeSantis put out a book on February 28th, and I don't see any reason why those machines can't be put to the use of printing toilet paper as well as his book because they're both kind of worth the same thing, wiping your ass. So with that in mind, I'm just going to do a little bit of soul searching here because it's obvious that Kevin and I aren't big fans of Ron DeSantis, but he is a really important guy to keep track of when it comes to the 2024 presidential election, because he's doing really well in the polls. And he's definitely a force to be reckoned with. Probably one of the main forces, at least in the current moment, who could potentially topple Trump and become the front runner for the Republican Party for president in 2024. So with the series, Kevin and I are doing something that we don't normally do in the hopes that it'll pan out into something useful. And what I mean by useful is useful in terms of providing you all, as well as ourselves, with a window into the 2024 presidential race from a Republican lens and a, also a detailed study of one of the GOP's biggest names right now. As you probably know by now, Kevin and I are much more comfortable looking at elections that have already happened and giving you a 360-degree portrait of the life and times of an individual who has already safely gone down in history as an almost president. So as we set out to work on this series, I found myself confronting a conflicting set of emotions. So for this series to be on brand for us, Ron DeSantis has to declare for the presidency, and he has to go on to do battle compellingly, comedically, or otherwise in the Republican primaries. That's really the bare minimum when it comes to how we and I imagine most people who listen would categorize an almost president as an almost president. So for the sake of this podcast, I find myself eagerly hoping Ron DeSantis will declare, but for the sake of the country, I find myself hoping against hope that he'll only be Florida's problem for a little while longer. I've never played fantasy sports, but I imagine that this is what it feels like when you're stuck between rooting for your team in a close game while also hoping that the guy on the opposing team who's on your fantasy team goes off in that game too. So ultimately, we'll see what happens. 
maybe the all-consuming Disney empire that DeSantis decided to piss off will take them out and this series will be scrapped right then and there. But maybe, perhaps more likely, we'll be bringing you quite a few more episodes before this is all over. I'm reminded of a quote from former president and publisher of the Washington Post, Phil Graham, who once said that journalism is a first draft of history. So join us as we discuss this so-called first draft of history on episode two of Florida Man, Ron DeSantis. Good morning, class. For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important, the President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the president. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be president. All right, so welcome to the show. Let me give you a sense of what you're in for today. We have a great episode planned. So to start, I'm going to dig a bit into the biography of Ron DeSantis. And following that, Kevin's going to give you a update on the state of the field regarding who's declared for the 2024 presidential race since we last talked, as well as what policy positions they've put forward so far. And after that, we're going to come together to discuss current headlines in DeSantis land, as well as with the GOP as a whole. So let's get started. Last episode, we discussed the boyhood of Ron DeSantis and his growth from a Florida boy into everybody's favorite Florida man. You'll remember that DeSantis spent much of his childhood on the baseball diamond. He played in the Little League World Series and went on to be captain of Yale's baseball team his senior year in college, where you can still read about his exploits today in old sports reporting. In this episode, we're going to talk about that crazy thing that hits you once you graduate from the sheltered life of a college student, and that's life. It hits some harder than others. In my case, it took getting knocked down a few times before I realized it was just going to keep on hitting me, and I had to find some way to just deal with it, I guess. I'm still kind of figuring it out as I sit here. As for Ron DeSantis, however, after graduating from Yale in 2001, he taught for a year in Rome, Georgia, at a preppy private school called Darlington School. This is a time in his life that DeSantis seldom, if ever, speaks about publicly. His brief year-long teaching career also goes unmentioned in his recent memoir, The Courage to be Free, as well as any professional bios written about him. And given the fact that teachers are often praised as these unsung heroes, and the fact that DeSantis has so much to say currently about education in his state, I was a little taken aback not to see this aspect of his career more prominently displayed by both him as well as in news articles and short bios that you can read out there about him. As much as I hate to say it, the reason I'm here is largely because of a series of truths from Donald Trump about DeSantis's teaching career. So thanks, I guess, Don. Anyway, during his short time as a teacher, DeSantis taught history, and he also coached baseball as well as football. And here's where we're going to go into more detail about the accusation leveled at him by former President Donald Trump. Just a quick recap of what that was. Trump truthed accusing DeSantis of grooming high school girls during his year spent teaching and coaching at Darlington School. Did the grooming actually occur? While I hope not, the jury's still out on that. 
Multiple sources, however, including the New York Times, Business Insider, and The Independent, managed to track down former students of DeSantis. For more information, both students who interacted with DeSantis in the classroom, as well as on the athletic field. But apparently that isn't where his interactions with them stopped. And that's where room for this accusation kind of is made. Because since Darlington was a boarding school, where high school age students got to experience life away from home for the first time, no more mom and dad, probably no more curfew, there were parties on campus. And the students basically got to get a sense of what college life was going to be like in the party scene before actually attending college. And uh, their teacher, at the time, 23-year-old Ron DeSantis, would attend some of these parties, whether they were parties hosted by seniors that he taught and was friendly with, or parties with Darlington grads. And in either case, some of these parties served alcohol. And need I remind you that if you're under the age of 21, it is not legal for you to drink alcohol. So he was attending parties where alcohol was being illegally served. And so you can kind of see how that opens the door for some potential trouble for him as far as rumors of grooming students, especially when you can see pictures of big, smiley, red-faced meatball Ron surrounded by high school girls. Which brings me to my next point, which is that when you're a young teacher, it's difficult to navigate the waters of being awkwardly close to your students in age. And I'm not saying any of this to give the Santas a free pass. All I mean is that at the time, the oldest students on campus were just five years younger than their teacher. Working in education myself, I've seen this play out where the young teacher is just really forced to work that much harder at establishing a very clear boundary between teacher and student. And they have to almost overcompensate for their maturity level in the classroom so that their students will take them seriously. And look, I've seen young teachers rise to the occasion with this. I've seen teachers substantially grow as a result of this. And I've also seen teachers fall flat on their face. It's not an easy thing to do. And many young teachers struggle with it. But to go out partying with your students just takes on a whole new level of problematic especially when there's alcohol involved and those students you're partying with, which I hate to even say that in the same sentence, partying with students, but those students that you're partying with aren't even legally allowed to drink it. I know that we lean left here, but find me a right-wing source and email it to us that says partying and drinking alcohol with your underage students as a 23-year-old teacher is even remotely okay, and I will read it. But frankly, It just makes the entire profession look bad. And it makes DeSantis look especially bad. As we saw with Trump's accusation, it opens DeSantis up to a lot of potential trouble when you can easily find these pictures of him as a teacher partying with these high school girls. And Trump is a guy who is always looking for openings when it comes to people who he perceives as a threat and even people he doesn't. A quote that I think says it all comes from a former student of DeSantis who attended one of these parties. He said, and I quote, as an 18-year-old, I remember thinking, what are you doing here, dude? I don't even think I, I mean, I'm going to go on, but I don't even think I need to. That sums it up really nicely. Just like, what are you doing here, dude? One of the pieces I read stated that 
once DeSantis left Darlington School, a memo was released to staff informing them of the inappropriateness of fraternizing with students. And whether or not this memo came out in response to DeSantis's behavior is kind of a moot point because by attending these parties, he was already doing exactly what the memo warned against. Maybe against my better judgment, I I tried to put myself in the mind of a 23-year-old DeSantis just to figure out why he thought this was okay, why he did this. So I took a look at the years leading up to his year teaching at the Darlington School. So after graduating from an Ivy League school as both a successful athlete and scholar, DeSantis was probably a bit full of himself, maybe rightfully so. I mean, he was captain of his baseball team. He graduated magna cum laude in his class. So he probably had some swagger. And this was probably something that he carried over with him into the classroom, as well as on the athletic fields when he was coaching, or at least several of his former students seemed to think so. Gates Minnis, who graduated from Darlington in 2003, said of him, quote, he was a total jock. That was his personality. He was definitely proud that he graduated Ivy and thought he was very special. Matthew Arna, another student, described him as, quote, kind of a smug guy. It was like, a, am kind of better than you. And we were all just kids. Other descriptors from that same piece from his students include charismatic, very smart, a guy that seemed to be well-liked by his students, and yet a guy who had a superiority complex about him. And multiple students said that or versions of that in these pieces. His sense of being the big man on campus, the former captain of his Ivy League baseball team, a former Greek frat bro who graduated magna cum laude from Yale, even led to an act of cruelty that was witnessed by multiple former students. It's an incident that brings to mind bullying or hazing, immature behavior that you'd usually ascribe to stupid kids who were trying to show off. But as I don't need to remind you, DeSantis was the adult. He was the supposed professional in the room when this happened. But as you'll see, he was the one who instigated this. The story goes like this. So apparently there was a student going around bragging about just how much milk he could drink, which is a weird flex, but maybe he was just another casualty of the got milk ad campaign. Ultimately, who's to say? But the kid probably had really strong bones from all that calcium. So that's a good thing. But anyway, Mr. DeSantis heard the student bragging and dared him to drink as much milk as he could in one sitting. The student, come on, a high school guy, you could probably predict this, accepted this dare. And he ended up drinking so much milk that he basically projectile vomited it out in front of his peers. There are probably some of you out there thinking, well, stupid kid, he brought it upon himself. Well, former student turned teacher Adam Moody, who witnessed the event and can now see it from two perspectives, that of student and now that of a teacher, said that, quote, I think about it now. I'm a teacher now in public school. I put myself in that moment and it's just unthinkable. There's a cruelty to the sense of humor. So fortunately for the students at Darlington, I guess maybe unfortunately for the rest of us, DeSantis left the teaching profession after a year in the trenches. And of course, as we know, he wouldn't stay out of education for long. A mere two decades later, as Florida's governor, 
he would make education one of his primary focuses, which we're going to talk a lot about in this episode. Uh, He simultaneously would tout the free state of Florida while seeking to exert control over exactly what can and can't be taught in Florida schools and universities, as well as which gender identities, pronouns are considered valid among students and faculty, and which are even permitted to be disclosed or discussed. But you'll be sure to hear us talk a lot more about that throughout this episode and, frankly, the course of the series. So now, before we check in on some current events going on with DeSantis and the Republican Party, let's transition over to the state of the field so that Kevin can give you a good sense of who's declared their candidacy for 2024, as well as what they've been up to since the last episode. So Kevin, I'll let you take it away. Okay, so as you know, if you listen to this podcast, the election is still almost two years away. But here in America, our politicians would just get bored if they had to suffer through a single moment without some sort of campaign going on or something like that. And so there are already a few people who have decided to declare for the nomination and are sort of gearing up their campaigns. So what we'll do is we'll go through the Republican candidates, then we'll go through the Democratic candidates, And then we'll look at current polling to see how the field is sort of shaping out so far. So let's get started. So on the Republican side, we're going to have to start by talking about the big orange elephant in the room. And yes, I'm talking about the one, the only, the former president, Donald J. Trump. Trump officially declared his campaign on November 15th, 2022, but he had been teasing a run since basically mid-race 2020 when he told fellow Republicans that, quote, if this doesn't work, I'll just run again in four years, unquote, which is classic Trump style. And I feel like there's almost nothing to be said about Trump that hasn't already been said at this point. So we'll keep it brief here and just focus on some of the major policy statements that he's made so far, since there aren't even that many of those. So, so far, Trump has released a video in which he stated some important policy positions specifically on the issues of education and gender. And among other things, he said he would pass a bill that establishes male and female as the only two genders recognized by the government, inflict severe consequences on teachers that tell students that they are, quote, trapped in the wrong body, unquote, and allow patients to sue doctors who perform gender-affirming care, and then lastly, make principals elected officials. So this would mean that when you vote for all your town-level officials, you would vote for a principal as well. So that's roughly Trump's views on education and gender so far. On the issue of Ukraine, Trump has released a peace plan of sorts, if you can call it that, which involves handing over large chunks of Ukraine to Russia in order to appease Putin. And also worth noting, as it stands, Trump is the only candidate in the race with NFTs available for sale. So if you are looking for NFTs for the upcoming race, you know where to go. And we just have to be honest about this one. Currently, he's way out ahead of the field in this category. No one is even close to him on the NFT front. So that's Donald Trump. Moving on then, we're going to talk about Nikki Haley, who is one of the only other candidates in the race currently. So we talked a bit about her on the show in the past, but just a brief rundown of her background. She was the former governor of South Carolina, who was then nominated to be the ambassador to the United Nations under the Trump administration. Now, while it's still early, Haley has made some hints towards her policy positions. So first, Haley has been staunchly anti-abortion in the past, but more recently, she has called for a consensus on abortion and said that she would oppose a full-on ban. Those are her words. She pointed to a bill by Lindsey Graham, which would ban abortion after 15 weeks and allow exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother as a policy that she might support. 
Now, in foreign policy, she's claimed a, quote, traditional, tough-minded Republican approach to foreign policy. And what this means, among other things, is that she's pledged to combat Russian and Chinese influence on the world stage in order to maintain America's superpower status. She's also promised to completely cut aid to countries that, quote, hate America. And she gave a list of these countries. Among them were Cuba and Iraq that would fall under this manner. She has stated strongly that she would continue sending military aid to Ukraine as well. Now, on the front of education, Haley has also come out in support of the Florida Parental Rights and Education Act, otherwise known as the Don't Say Gay Bill. But she said that the act does not go far enough, so she would push it further. That's kind of what she's saying there. And so that's Nikki Haley. Again, we've kind of heard from her already, but that's a rough rundown of what she's about so far. So lastly, for our Republican side of things, is a guy that you're probably not going to have heard of before, is my guess. And it's not clear right now whether or not he'll actually make any noise, but I tend to not rule anyone out after people like Andrew Yang and Pete Buttigieg had a big impact last time around. So lastly, we're going to turn to a guy named Vivek Ramaswamy. So Ramaswamy is an entrepreneur, and he's the founder of the biopharmaceutical company Royvant Sciences. In 2020, Ramaswamy became concerned about critical race theory and wokeness, particularly in HR departments, and he began writing and speaking about these issues at length. In 2021, he founded an investment firm called Strive Asset Management, which was designed to oppose the ESG framework in investment firms. And so just for those of you that may not know this, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance. Companies receive ESG scores, and these scores are used for investors who want to invest in a socially responsible manner. So each company will get an ESG score, and then people who are interested in socially responsible investing will invest in specifically companies with higher scores. This practice has been criticized as a way for wokeness to trickle into corporate practices and affect business. Ramaswamy is the author of the books Woke Inc. and A Nation of Victims, which elucidate his views on ESG, wokeness, and the victim mentality in America, among other things. A summary of Ramaswamy's views can be found in this statement from him, quote, The most fundamental divide of our time is not black versus white, gay versus straight, or even Democrat versus Republican. It is the Great Reset versus the Great Uprising, aristocracy versus sovereignty, self-governance versus monarchy. So let's go through some of the issues and talk about Ramaswamy's positions on them. So first, we'll talk about wokeness. On the issue of wokeness and CRT, or whatever they're calling it these days, Ramaswamy has not made any explicit policy statements at this point. However, his books and his activism indicate that he's probably going to look a lot like someone like Ron DeSantis when he's dealing with a lot of these issues. So he's probably going to take these things head on, attack wokeness and CRT in schools, businesses, what have you. On the issue of China, Ramaswamy has made China a major focus of his campaign so far. He believes countering Chinese influence is essential to the survival of American democracy, and he also believes America needs to economically decouple from China, which suggests that he will probably support something like Donald Trump's trade war with China, although possibly even a bit stricter than that. On foreign policy, Ramaswamy has stated that good use of the U.S. military is, quote, protecting American soil and American interests, not a pointless war somewhere else, unquote. Which I think in today's day and age, it's fair to say that this quote is probably a wink and a nod at the Russo-Ukrainian war going on. So we can probably infer some of his views about the Ukrainian war from that quote. On the issue of free speech, Ramaswamy has stated that he will do a U.S. government files, kind of in the style of Elon Musk's Twitter files, with the goal of, quote, publicly exposing every known instance in which bureaucrats have wrongfully pressured companies to take constitutionally prohibited actions, unquote. 
And on the issue of affirmative action, Ramaswamy has expressed opposition to affirmative action and has proposed rescinding Lyndon B. Johnson's executive order 11246, which was an affirmative action executive order. And then on immigration, Ramaswamy has called for establishing an immigration system that is more merit-based than the one that we currently have. Okay, so that kind of wraps things up for the Republicans. So we're going to move on to the Democrats. On the Democratic side, obviously the big name in the race right now is the incumbent, Joe Biden. And as it stands, Joe Biden has not announced whether or not he will be running for re-election in 2024. Obviously, there are a lot of concerns about his health, but so far he has not made a statement either way. So we're just going to move on from that. If he declares, we'll talk more about that. And if he doesn't, then we'll start to look at four alternative candidates. But moving on to one of the only other candidates who has officially declared for the Democratic primary, and this is going to be Marianne Williamson. Again, this might be somebody that you're not familiar with if you follow American politics, but We'll kind of dig into her background a little bit. So Marianne Williamson is a self-help author and spiritual leader. She ran for president in 2020 and made it onto the very crowded debate stage long enough to emphasize a generally progressive message with very few specifics. So Williamson currently doesn't have any policy proposals out. And in general, she has been criticized for being a little bit vague when it comes to policies and an overall agenda. But what we'll do is we'll pick apart some policies from her 2020 campaign to get a sense of what she's about philosophically. So in 2020, she strongly emphasized the issue of reparations for slavery. This was a big thing for her. She said it in a lot of interviews and talked about it on stage and and whatnot. And her number was around $200 to $500 billion to be distributed based on the recommendation of black leaders. She also emphasized the issue of climate change, which she called the greatest threat facing humanity. And she supported the Green New Deal, which was a big policy at the time that was kind of going around in Congress. She's also pro-choice. She supports a $15 minimum wage. And she's also advocated for disbanding the NSA and establishing a Department of Peace, which is her words, which would focus on education and economic development of foreign nations, among other things. Generally speaking, she's very pro-LGBTQ, and she also supports a full path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, and in general, has a favorable view of immigrants. So I could go on with more things she said and policies that she's vaguely supported, but I think that gives you a good sense of what she's about. She's a progressive-leaning candidate who's going to be probably attacking Joe Biden from the left. So moving in, this one is hot off the presses. We just got this from our on-the-ground Almost Presidents podcast reporters. But this past week in New Hampshire, none other than Robert F. Kennedy Jr. hinted that he might be throwing his hat into the Democratic primary as well. So if you're not up to speed on RFK Jr., you might think he's kind of in the vein of his father, who is obviously the person we've been talking about, Bobby Kennedy, which if that's what you think, you're going to be a little bit off base. So RFK Jr. was obviously the son of Bobby Kennedy. And since then, he's basically been setting out to as thoroughly disgrace that name as he possibly could. And he's been doing quite a good job. Now, but in all seriousness, RFK Jr. is a lawyer who has advocated for a lot of progressive and environmentalist causes specifically. He's represented the NAACP and various indigenous peoples groups And he's also been involved in the Keystone XL pipeline dispute and the protests and all that sort of thing. So he's generally on the progressive side of things. He's got an environmentalist leanings. So I think where things get a little bit different with RFK Jr. is that he comes from a time when anti-vax beliefs were not primarily held by Republicans or Trump supporters, but instead were also held by California crystal-wearing suburban hippie moms. And in addition to all of his progressive advocacy, all the stuff I talked about earlier, he's also been one of the most prominent voices opposing the use of vaccines. 
He's written multiple books about Fauci, COVID, tech censorship, and all these other causes that have now become associated with the right rather than the left. So RFK Jr. has yet to formally declare his campaign, and so it remains to be seen if he will even actually run. Sometimes people make these announcements just to test the waters and see if people actually even like them. But we'll kind of see what happens here. He, he has said that he would run as a Democrat, which is interesting considering that he has become a little bit more associated with the right now. But we'll sort of keep our finger on the pulse on this for the next episode of our DeSantis series. Okay, so that wraps up our candidates. We've talked about all of the ones who have formally declared, and then we threw, threw in a little bonus RFK Jr. at the end there. And so what we'll do is we'll move on now to talk about polling. So the first important number that we're going to talk about is going to be Joe Biden's approval rating. So Joe Biden's approval rating is going to be important for a number of reasons. One, it's going to determine if other Democrats decide to jump in the race. If Joe is looking very unpopular, a bunch of other Democrats are going to want to throw their hat in the ring because they're going to think they have a shot. Second, it's also a big factor because Joe Biden is a stand-in for the Democratic Party. And so if Joe Biden is looking very unpopular, most other Democrats are also probably going to be looking unpopular because most other Democrats are generally associated with Joe Biden, who is the representative of the party. So this is a big number. And obviously, of course, it also affects Joe Biden's decision. If he is looking very unpopular, he may decide not to run again in the style of LBJ, who we talked about on this podcast. So Joe Biden's approval has been slowly climbing from a low of around 36% in late July of 2022. And right now it sits around 44% with his disapproval being around 51%. So it's still not maybe the number that he would like it to be, but his support has been growing slowly since the summer of last year. Okay, so that's Joe Biden's approval rating. We'll move on to some of the other important numbers. So what we'll do is, again, we'll kind of break this up, Republican and Democrat. We'll talk about polling on the Republican side, and then we'll talk about polling on the Democratic side. So on the Republican side, I'm going to go through a couple of recent polls. The first one's going to be a Susquehanna poll. And in this one, Trump had 29% of the support of the people polled. DeSantis had 27%, so really neck and neck there. And then Nikki Haley came in behind these two, and she had 10% of the support. And so that's the Susquehanna poll, so that gives you a certain picture. The next poll is going to give you a completely different picture, right? Okay, so this is the Emerson poll. And in the Emerson poll, Trump had 55% support, DeSantis 25%. Mike Pence was the next most popular with 8%. And Nikki Haley, in this case, had 5% support. So those are two pretty recent polls. So then I want to look at the RCP average. This is Real Clear Politics. It's a site that does aggregate polling. And they have their averages published at this point. And on their RCP average, Trump has 43% support. DeSantis has 28%. Pence has 6.5%. And Haley has 6.2%. So that gives you a sense of the race. We've obviously got two you know, big names sticking out on top, which is pretty telling considering DeSantis hasn't even thrown his hat in the ring yet. But that's generally the state of the field right now for the Republicans. So we'll move on to the Democrats then. And again, I'm going to look to the Susquehanna poll first for the Democrats. In this poll, Biden had 27% support and Buttigieg had 17% support. Vice President Kamal Harris coming in third with 9% support. And then after the Susquehanna poll, I'm just going to move right on to the RCP average to give you a sense of things. In the RCP average, Biden has 35% of the vote. Harris has 11%. Buttigieg comes next with 10%. Bernie Sanders has 9%. And then Here's a name you may not have heard in a while, but Hillary Clinton is, I guess you could say fifth, with 5% support. So that just about wraps up our analysis of the state of the field for 2024. We hope you tune in again to uh, get another update in the next 
DeSantis episode that we release. All right, so why don't we jump into a few current headlines taking place around not only Ron DeSantis, but the Republican Party in general. So, Kevin, if I'm going to set a bit of an itinerary for us just to kind of help give us direction here, I want to talk about CPAC. I want to talk about Ron DeSantis' new book and his candidacy disclosure to two anonymous people, which was kind of bizarre. His speech at the Reagan Library, which was on his book tour, but kind of felt a lot more like a speech that somebody who's looking to run for president would give, as well as the legislative session that has started in Florida and will be running until the beginning of May. So starting with CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, for those of you that needed that acronym expanded, I know I did my first time looking into, my God, CPAC. So Kevin, what'd you think of CPAC this time around? So CPAC is always what it is, right? And for me, always the less I can talk about CPAC, the better, but I guess this is what, you know, we signed up for today. So we're, we got to go for it. But, you know, it, it is what it is. I, I think of it as uh, Woodstock for insane right wingers. <laughs> OK. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I definitely thought it wasn't surprising, uh, unfortunately, but it seems like it kind of is a thermometer of where the Republican Party is at at this point. It was mostly just complaining and grievance politics and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking for positive things to say because it just feels so polarizing to say that Republicans are all a bunch of lunatics. But the highlights are that they they kicked their racist guy out because he was too racist. But then they proceeded to go on making jokes about trans Americans and specifically saying nasty things about trans kids, which we'll get into. And they kicked a dude out who was too racist, but they seem to forget about the twice convicted sex offender who had his own booth selling a book. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. I mean, I guess we'll have to start out with the headliner, Trump, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm just on the uh, on the racist that they kicked out. We should say that was the guy who I, I don't know if you heard about this, but when Donald Trump went and had dinner with Kanye West and it was this whole thing, that's the Nazi that he had dinner with. I don't know oh, if you heard about this. God, it was no. I heard about the dinner. It was that Nazi that they had to yeah, throw out. That's that's the guy that they threw out. Yeah. Well, um, they definitely sent mixed signals his way. I mean, he had dinner with <laughs> Trump, but they threw him out of CPAC. Yeah. I mean, I would never no. say that I feel sorry for a Nazi because I don't, but he definitely got some mixed signals there. I don't know if that's right. They should have been more direct with the guy. You're a Nazi. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They're not really being fair to him. <laughs> They're not really being fair to him. You know, they're on the one hand, it's like, hey, come to dinner with the leader of our party. And then on the other hand, it's like, oh, no, you can't come to our conference. Like, yeah, what are you, what are you supposed to think? Yeah, I mean, I guess there are some friends that you don't want to be seen in public with, and maybe he's one of them. Well, yeah, that that's, I mean, if we're, I was joking, obviously, but if we're being serious, that's what it was. Like, Trump, Trump didn't know who he was when he met him, and it just, they sort of accidentally had dinner together. That still kind of blows my mind how you can accidentally have dinner with a Nazi. That's, yeah. And you brought up grievance politics before, and I, I want to touch on that, because when Trump headlined, and I know I'm using stand-up comedian language, sorry, not sorry, but... When Trump headlined and gave his policy speech in, in Iowa on Monday of the, the conference, it almost seemed like grievance politics took a different direction. I want to quote from one of his speeches. I don't know if his speechwriter you know, came off of watching The Dark Knight or an episode of The Punisher, who the right seems to love, but it almost seemed like grievance politics took a turn to revenge politics. Uh, I'll, I'll quote the part of the speech that kind of made me think that. Trump said, quote, Today I add, I am your warrior, I am your justice, 
and for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. Which when you read that in Batman's voice, pretty badass. But when you read it in Trump's, and when you take a measure of the political climate in America today, could be pretty scary, right? I mean, pretty scary stuff, potentially. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the that mindset I feel like has been around for a while. I was going to bring up, I don't, and I don't know if you watched this, but in 2020, I watched the RNC for some reason. And there was this famous speech and it kind of got like made fun of, but like the actual essence of the speech was, was a little scary. And like the approach that she was taking, but this Kimberly Guilfoyle person who's from Fox news, I think kind of went on stage and did this whole thing where she's like, the best is yet to come. And like, it was like this insane thing that I couldn't believe she thought was like sensible and cool. (laughs) And many people speculated that she was on cocaine, which, you know, is a whole different story, but I mean, sometimes they remind us get caught up in the moment. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I'm doing obviously an important, horrible impersonation of it. So people should look it up because it is, it is actually genuinely funny now that we're like removed from the possibility of them winning a reelection in 2020. It's pretty funny. I mean, just as a rule, I think Eric Andre should be attending CPAC every year and just yeah. heckling people because he was hilarious when he heckled Alex Jones. I can only imagine what he would do with Trump. But yeah. I just think about what he's saying and what we've been seeing lately on Fox News. I mean, talking about him being your warrior, your your justice, you know, for those of you who have been wronged and betrayed. Fox News, Tucker Carlson's kind of swerving away from the insurrection even being a violent thing. They're sort of changing the narrative on that when, I mean, people freaking died. People were injured. So it just, it's kind of scary that that is the the flaming rhetoric that is still coming from him. And I really just hope that doesn't manifest itself in violence down the road because grievance politics, that's fine. I mean, just bitch and bitch and bitch until nobody wants to hear you bitch anymore. But when you're talking like in this, almost as if you're vowing revenge, that that scares me a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And that's, I think that's the type of philosophy that trips you into extremism, authoritarianism, all that sort of thing. When you believe that, like that you have been wronged by an evil force and when you're fighting an evil force, the gloves are off. Anything is allowed. Right. And that's when Mm. I think you get into really dangerous territory. Regardless, Trump is going to run, of course, even if he is indicted, even if he's behind bars, he will run for president. So we can expect to see him fighting to the bitter end. We were saying too, before we got on the mics, even if DeSantis winds up winning the nomination, there's that fear that Trump will splinter off and form a third party. Yeah. And I mean, my opinion on that is I think it's hard to imagine him not doing that. To me, it seems like either he wins the Republican nomination or he runs third party. Like, He's not the kind of guy who's going to just step back. Yeah. And I think it'll, well, I don't think I know that it'll do a lot more damage than Andrew Yang forming the forward party. You know, that didn't really make much of a dent in in Biden's numbers, but this would be a huge deal if he were to do that. Well, in, in fairness, I guess the difference maybe Andrew Yang didn't run the forward party in 2020. He ran it, what, last year, 2022. So. But yeah, I take your point. Like, yeah, it's true. You know, there are all these third party candidates every year, but this would be quite a bit different, right? Because Trump is, you know, ostensibly going to be winning over large percentages of one of the major parties. And at the end of the day, he's going to do what he's going to do. I mean, the only person whose counsel he listens to is his own. So, yeah, 
yeah so i think i think it will definitely be interesting to see and you know i mean i I don't think it super matters how the specifics play out you know like maybe trump wins more honestly i could see trump winning more of the popular vote than the republican candidate but either way even if he wins like two three percent of the vote like that's usually all you need to flip an election yeah especially especially if those two three percent if if any number of them come from key swing states, you know, at the end of the day, the difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in 2020 was 90,000 votes about. So like you don't need a lot to flip an election and Donald Trump would certainly siphon that off. Yeah. And moving on, I mean, his biggest competitor who is yet undeclared DeSantis did not attend. He has been making stops along the way for his book tour. So he was not at CPAC. Pence, to quote uh, John Favreau, of Pod Save America. Whenever he says Pence, he says of Hang Mike Pence fame, which I'm just doing to bring up the joke. I don't do that other than just doing it on this podcast because I don't necessarily think it's funny. I mean, people actually wanted to kill the guy, and I think that they might have if they got their hands on him. So Pence declined the invitation to CPAC. I'm not sure if it's because he was concerned that he might bump into some of those people who wanted to hang him or what it was. He didn't specify his reasons for not attending, but he was not in attendance. He's also somebody that people think might make a run for the presidency. Nikki Haley, however, did attend. In her speech, she did a nice job of attacking wokeness as a major problem facing America. And she continued her trend of calling for a younger generation of lawmakers. Again, kind of wondering who she's going to wind up getting because she's somebody who worked for Trump. And then when she calls for a younger generation, well, DeSantis is younger than her and is polling a lot better than her and hasn't even entered the race. So it's it, it kind of seems like she's going to get stomped. Yeah. So just real quick on the front of like Mike Pence and Ron DeSantis not showing up, I think I can speak a little bit to that. So with Mike Pence, I think what's going on there is that Mike Pence, there's a certain animosity towards Mike Pence from the activist class of the Republican Party. So there's this classic, I guess, divide in an all parties where you have like activist level people um, who might be journalists, they might be actual activists, fundraisers, whatever. And then you have like voters. And there's always a huge difference between these two groups of people. And in the case of the Republican Party, CPAC is always going to be representative of like these activists, right? And these activists have a certain level of animosity towards Mike Pence um, and a certain devotion to Trump, right? But I'm interested like as to why DeSantis didn't go. Because DeSantis, presumably, he at least I think he should hope, has a certain level of support amongst these activists. And so it likely would sort of at least sort of play good for him to go. So I, I didn't quite understand that. But maybe there's some information there that I don't know. Yeah, I think he definitely would have killed. I mean, he did go to Iowa, I believe, last Friday. But of course, I mean, CPAC was over by that point. But um, yeah, I'm not sure if he's kind of just trying not to cross swords with Trump for as long as he can, or if he's just riding high off of the book being out and people kind of loving what he's doing for Florida. Florida being seen by conservatives as this bastion of freedom, a model of what America should be like, should turn into, and seeing him as America's governor, I think they've started referring to him as. So yeah, I mean, I don't know either. I don't want to make any really wild speculation as to why he wasn't there. I think he would have killed it if he was there, but I also don't think it's the end of the world that he wasn't there. Yeah, I mean, maybe that maybe that's right. I was thinking that he may be more afraid of Trump than we thought, but it could just be that he just doesn't want to have the altercation, which to me is signaling something, right? Because taking on Trump is all about altercations, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it's going to happen 
we'll talk later about a little bit of Ron on Don violence, not direct, but indirect. So DeSantis has shown that he's not afraid to bring the image up in people's mind that he met great success recently, where Trump has mostly just met failures and indictments. So we'll talk about that later, but I don't know. I mean, I think that's a big open question that we might wind up talking about every episode, just thinking about like, what is DeSantis's plan for when he has to get on that stage and take on Trump? And also DeSantis is pretty famously not that great at retail politics too, which Trump is awesome at. So it'll be interesting to see how he does when he's got to be traveling around a lot more than he already is, shaking a lot of hands and having a lot of candid conversations. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's going to be the big question. Like The way that Ron DeSantis has handled this so far, I think has been really smart. And in general, I think Ron DeSantis comes off to me as being a pretty clever political actor. Absolutely. But I think that what he's his strategy so far, which we've seen in a number of places where he essentially brushes off any attack from Donald Trump by saying, well, I'm just focused on Florida and I'm just focused on like delivering for Florida for Floridians or whatever he says. That's only going to work while you're the governor of Florida, while you're on a campaign for president. Well, now suddenly we do have to talk about how you're going to deliver for the United States. And that excuse doesn't really work anymore, um, even though it's a pretty clever move at the moment. So I think it will be interesting to see what he does. Yeah. Yeah, politically, you're going to have to do something to criticize the record of not only the incumbent president, but somebody who was president for a full term who has a record for you to critique. Some of it you endorsed while you were governor. And also his endorsement was a big factor that got you into the governor's mansion in the first place. So, Well, yeah, we should should say, and I don't know if you came across this, but probably more than endorsed, there's a famous ad from Ron DeSantis where he's like reading this Donald Trump book to his child. I don't know if you saw this, but like, yeah, I didn't really I mean, want to bring it up, but you brought it up. So let's talk about it. I mean, you know, he, he comes off really as a bit of a, you know, frankly, a bit of an ass kisser to but a I, guy that now he's going to have to turn on. Well, we talked about his cleverness and that he's a smooth calculating political operator. And I think there was a lot of strategy in that i don't think it was meant to be taken entirely seriously and i think the base would kind of be able to put that together because the ad was just ridiculous i mean he was reading his children one of whom i believe is like kindergarten age the art of the deal i think and then there's the one part where he's like and then donald trump said you're fired that's my favorite part and then there's that little scene of them building the wall out of legos and stuff like that I think I think it was a little bit satirical about how if you want to make it in Republican politics, you have to kiss the ring. So I think he was in both parts kissing the ring, kissing his ass, but also kind of poking fun at the fact that that's what you have to do. And it worked for him. I mean, look at him. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where I, first, I don't know if I super agree with your interpretation that it's satirical. But I think even if it is, I think it's kind of like one of those things where it's like if I went to a Nickelback concert, ironically, or if I listened to Nickelback, ironically, like you still listen to Nickelback, you know? And so it's like, you know, if you're if you're sort of like satirically kissing the ring, if you're satirically reading books to to your kid about Donald Trump, you still did it. (laughs) It doesn't really matter how what level of irony you try to like shield it with, in my opinion. But no, you're right about that. I can't disagree with that. But you're right. I mean, it is one of those things where it's kind of hard to tell how seriously you should take it. It reminds me of the Carrie Lake thing that we talked about when we were doing the midterm stuff, where Carrie Lake says something to the effect, and now I can't remember the quote, but something to the effect of of essentially she would leave her husband for Donald Trump. And it's like, how seriously are we supposed to take that? Like, 
you know, should Mr. Lake be worried? Uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think Mr. Lake has a lot of reasons to be worried before he gets to that one. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, before we get to the, the rest of CPAC, just to talk about this guy, Daryl Brooks. So he was there promoting his book, somehow managed to get a booth. Daryl Brooks is a convicted sex offender. He was convicted of public masturbation in 1995 and also for exposing himself to two minors in New Jersey in 1998. But somehow he doesn't appear in either state's sex offender registry. So first of all, great job vetting your people, CPAC. And also, what the hell is the sex offender registry for, if not for guys like this? Yeah, like that's the thing. So, I mean, to talk about someone different but a little related, there's a guy, I think his name is Matt Schlaff. I believe that's um, it. So Matt Schlaff has been accused of like sexually harassing one of his employees, a male employee, I should say. But that's one thing, because I guess you could argue that, well, we don't know what actually happened and he hasn't been convicted, whatever. And then, you know, of course, with all sorts of other people, you could always argue that you didn't know. But it's like, yeah, there's a registry. Like, how do you not know? Like, that's what a registry is for. Like, they must have known. And this is a part of the pride to Maybe. on protecting your children. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, we'll protect your children unless, you know, the person is a politician in our party, then we got to protect them. Right. But if somebody's walking down the street doing drag, we'll be sure to walk your kid to the other side of the road. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should move yes. on. <laughs> um, attacks on transgender Americans were yeah. running amok throughout all of CPAC. It was, it was It was quite disgusting. I think the guy who really disgusted people the most was Michael Knowles. And he basically said from the stage at CPAC that, quote, there can be no middle way in dealing with transgenderism. It is all or nothing for the good of society and especially for the good of the poor people who have fallen prey to this confusion. Transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. The whole preposterous ideology. And then when he started taking flack for it. He tried to walk it back a little bit by saying that transgenderism and transgender people are two different things. But frankly, if you were to insert any other group in there with ism at the end, you know, Judaism or homosexuality, perhaps, I mean, I don't think anybody would mistake that there's murderous genocidal intent behind a message like that. And that just cannot be tolerated in in any sense. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting, you know, I'm familiar with this guy, Michael Knowles. He's a he's a kind of evangelical type guy, like super Catholic, that type of thing. And I just think it's really interesting that this defense is the one that he brings up because, you know, these guys are going to be the first ones to jump on their radio program the next time somebody says something bad about Christianity and they're immediately going to tell you that there's like a genocide of Christians going on. You know, it's that kind of like inflammatory rhetoric. And I'm just very surprised that he thinks this, oh, it's not the transgender people, it's the ideology. It's like, is a thing that's going to work. I, I, you know, I think it's pretty clear what was being said there. And I think even in the most charitable interpretation, I think it's pretty clear that the intent is, at the very least, to prevent adults from making decisions about their body, to take this like to that level of extreme. And so that's the kind of restrictions I think you have to expect, or even worse, and we'll talk about some of those policies, I guess, as we come to it definitely not something that can be tolerated at all even remotely i mean this is this is getting this is getting dangerous at this point 
Yeah, and I think for what it's worth, I guess on this series, we've done our fair share of bashing Republicans for sure. But, you know, I think there is, you know, I think in a democracy, I'll say that it takes all kinds of kinds, I guess. You know, we need different perspectives. And I think there is a core conservative perspective that is valuable, right? Like this idea of like smaller government or this idea of, of um, lowering taxes, of like trying to get rid of unnecessary regulations. There are ideas there that I think are worth preserving. And I just think it's sad that, you know, you go to CPAC, you don't hear any of these things. Like these aren't, these aren't Republican policies anymore. The Republican policies are attacking a group of people, a minority group, you know, and I, I think it's just kind of sad that it's resorted to that because I do think that we need certain per- perspectives in the marketplace of ideas, as it were. Because Democrats are far from perfect, so there needs to be some kind sure. of counterbalance, but they seem like the only alternative that there is because the right is just off somewhere nasty. Yeah. Um, I mean, to get, to give a few more examples, you know, things that drew applause and laughter, uh, they claim that the Democrats believe there are millions of genders. Somebody said that at CPAC. There was a joke about the preferred pronouns of the Chinese spy balloon. Trump got applause from the crowd promising to stop the, quote, chemical castration and sexual mutilation of children if he was reelected, uh, as well as supporting a national ban on gender-affirming care for young trans Americans, which would cause an irreparable amount of mental health damage, um, as well as just denying the identity of these children. I mean, it's it's absolutely terrible. Then, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene, not to be outdone, said that she wants to go after the doctors who provide this gender-affirming care to minors. So we're not just going after the kids, the adults that are trans. We're going after the doctors who would even try to provide them with care that has to do with the, the gender that they identify as. So it seems like a mixture of trying to outdo each other and activate the base, as well as just hate speech. I mean, I guess maybe on like a slightly lighter note, but with those first two like comments about millions of genders and the the gender of the of the balloon or whatever, I just think like, can't we do better in conservative comedy than literally the same joke every single time? Like, how yeah. many people are going to tout out that joke Try hard. about? Yeah, about there being all these different genders. Like, like, come on, give me something new. Like that. How long has that joke been around? Yeah, it's like listening to comedians make jokes about abortion. Like. There's nothing new. Either come up with something new or don't write bits about it anymore. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I in general, I agree. You know, it's, it, it does, it's just kind of, I, I think I said, you know, this before, but it's just kind of sad that this is all like, this is the skeleton of the Republican party that we're left with, right? Like there's like, we're not, we're not in the age of Reagan anymore where there was at least ideas on the table. Uh, it's just sort of like, yeah, bashing and like screaming at, like this sort of specter of, you know, gender ideology destroying America or something. Yeah. And before we pivot to DeSantis, because that's a nice little segue, uh, John Kennedy, a Republican senator from Louisiana, got laughed. So his joke at the expense of trans kids was that trans kids change their gender at recess. And if you call them the wrong pronoun, they hyperventilate in their safe space. So it doesn't sound like a bunch of comedians and productive people to me. It just sounds like a bunch of bullies who don't really want to keep kids safe. They want to just have control over them. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, even if you, you know, cause there are probably going to be like a lot of people who disagree with this, obviously. And like, even if, if this is your perspective on gender or whatever, is, is this really, is this really tasteful to you? You know, is this really like what, 
politicians should be doing, just making fun of children on stage. Like it just seems really like malicious and strange. Yeah. I mean, you look at the name conservative political action conference. I mean, what, like what political action are we taking? I mean, I was, I was trying to look into it and find like more stuff that wasn't this. And I won't, and I won't look at Fox news because Fox news is not a news source. It's just an op-ed conspiracy theory network. Um, so I won't look there, but I mean, it's got such a, you know, prestigious productive sounding name to it to do something productive there, but it just seems like people need to show off in order to activate the base, get attention and win elections. Yeah. I mean, clearly, I mean, I, I guess that's what it's always been for, but I guess it's just, you know, at one point the like competitions you were having to try to win over your base was a little bit more than just bullying children. All right. So speaking of bullying children, why don't we pivot to Ron DeSantis at this point? So Ron DeSantis on February 28th released his book, The Courage to be Free. It's part memoir, part political tract about how everything he's doing in Florida is great and everything that's woke sucks. And that's why Florida is where woke goes to die, blah, blah, blah. And so he's been on tour and this book tour has really felt a lot more like an unofficial announcement of his candidacy for the 2024 presidential race. He's already been to Texas, California, Alabama, as well as Iowa on this book tour. And he stopped off at the Reagan Library, which is in California, and made this speech. I watched most of it. Um, which is why I want to talk about it so that I don't feel like the time was completely wasted. <laughs> it's worth noting that there were protests outside the venue, but inside hundreds of people did gather to listen to his speech. And I guess maybe this is where you and I disagree. So I'm getting used to the sound of his voice. Really used to piss me off, just the nasally pretentious sound yeah. of it. Yeah. But I don't think he's that bad of a speaker. And I, and I think he's getting more and more adept at delivering these speeches. Yeah. I mean, I I guess I could be wrong about that. It sounds like you've listened to a lot more of his speeches than I have, and I haven't listened to any super recent ones. I just find him to be very like awkward and uncomfortable. And yeah, like I don't like the sound of his voice. And I think the sound of his voice takes some getting used to. And I think we live in the world of sound bites, you know? So I wonder if people are actually going to be listening to a ton of Ron DeSantis speeches, or are they just going to see a couple clips on Instagram? And I think that's a factor. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely different from listening to a Trump speech, obviously. So people who are Trump supporters who are perhaps ready to move on from him because there's just too much drama and baggage and complaining that comes with him and go on to DeSantis, they're definitely not going to get the same kind of speech with just the outrageous, provocative stuff. He is he's a lot more to the point. And what he's saying might not always be true, might not always be honest, Um is there's a lot of chest beating, a lot of bragging, but he does come out there with stuff to say, and he does seem like he's really sticking to the script. He's not doing that crazy riffing. You never know what he's going to do next. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I, I go back to 2016, right? And a lot of the guys on that stage, certainly there were plenty of boneheads up there, but a lot of the guys on that stage were very good speakers. And I even think, you know, some of them like Jeb Bush, for example, were quite smart. But it's interesting. I watched a clip, a clip a while ago. It's just interesting to watch how Trump can just completely obliterate these guys and, and and not even say anything of substance. And so I think it will be interesting to see. DeSantis is certainly, I think, the largest threat 
to Trump's success that there ever has been outside of obviously, I guess, Joe Biden, but I mean, within the Republican Party. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, yeah, I guess it could, it could be different this time. And obviously it's a different thing now when Trump is going to have to, on some level, defend a legacy instead of just attack. But I don't really know, like, is it going to be possible again to just call people names? Like, is that going to win? And, you know, it worked last time, but who knows, you know, it might be different this time. I mean, he's definitely not as much of a winner as he was. So, yeah. And, and we talked about this with uh, Half-Baked History, where, you know, he seems to be getting a little like a little bit of his mojo back with like the Meatball Ron type nicknames, you know, just like throwing these nicknames around like, yeah. you know, we'll see if those types of things work because they worked last time, you know, just like he, he could just call Jeb Bush low energy Jeb in the middle of a debate. And that would totally crush Jeb Bush. It totally destroyed his campaign, you know, and he, he didn't need to say anything of substance. It just seems to me, though, like that while Trump is testing out nicknames like a playground bully, DeSantis is very calculatingly in the shadows preparing for a a campaign. And he has this record that he can fall back on of success in Florida that Republicans love to hear about. So I think, of course, it will come down to the, the clash on the debate stage because even when DeSantis was pulverizing the guy that he ran against for governor, that guy still took some shots at him and DeSantis didn't really do anything about it. And Republicans need that strong man leader. They need to see somebody who can be a bully, who can take charge of the pulpit and fire back. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing is, you know, I didn't watch those debates too much, but you know, from what I know of Charlie Crist, he's a little bit of a wet noodle. You know, he's not exactly a challenging uh, person. And and all the polls at that point were astronomically in Ron DeSantis's favor. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, when he has a real competitor up to go up against, like, what will that look like? And yeah, I mean, like I've said, certainly he's the greatest threat to Donald Trump that there's been in the Republican Party so far. He's he's presented a real alternative that Republicans are interested in. But I think it's a big the, the I think the debates will be a big factor as they were in 2016. Definitely. So why don't we take a look at the substance of this speech and, and almost treat it as a little bit more than just a uh, little talk he's giving to promote his book. So before before we move on, I wanted to say this because I forgot, but we should also say that you read Ron DeSantis's book, did you not? Or are you in the midst of reading it? Yeah, yeah, I am in the midst of reading it. I, I said I'm something to embarrass in, you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for outing me on that. Yeah. Um, I <laughs> sadly I bought it the day that it came out, and I bought it with a gift card that I may or may not have gotten from you for Christmas. Oof. <laughs> so uh, thanks for buying me Ron DeSantis' book, bro. <laughs> but I thought I was like, I was like, you know what? Is there going to be anything in here of value to me or really anyone? No. But if we're doing this ongoing series about him, I should at least read this and incorporate some of what the guy has to say about what we're saying about him. Not, I mean, it, just like to give him a shot and at least to see what, what he has to say about that don't say gay bill to see what he has to say about the fact that he kicked Mickey mouse in the balls and has taken over Disney world, you know, like all those different things. So, so far it just kind of has a lot of buzzwords that seem to be appealing to evangelicals. He's kind of referring to the woke left. Well, he's referring to the woke left as the woke left a lot. And then also as the so-called anointed ones, which of course would mean that the contrast would be the unanointed ones 
and then the eyes of the woke left would be the right. And then there's a lot of stuff so far just about indoctrinating and how he's got to make big moves to stop these corporations that are trying to spread woke ideology all throughout Florida. And I don't think I'm 30 pages in yet. So it's definitely going to be a ride. Yeah. I mean, with the buzzword stuff, we were kind of talking about this before we got on the mics, but you know, these, these books that politicians write, they tend to just be glorified reasons to go on a campaign. They don't tend to actually be real books, you know, like real, actual, interesting books. They tend to be just like, oh, I had a ghostwriter churn something out overnight and I put it out so that I could go on a little tour and I could treat it as a little mini campaign before I actually declare my campaign. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's why by and large, I'm not really interested in them. I bought this one because of the reasons I said, and I bought one of Joe Biden's books, I believe when he was either running for senator or when he was running for president, but got beat up by Barack. Like the promises keep or whatever. Yeah. And I really liked that. I'm, I was enjoying it because it, it literally just felt like I'm sitting cross-legged like, and there's a, a fireplace and he's sitting in a chair and he's my grandpa and he's just telling me about his life. Yeah, I, I could be wrong, but I, I think that one's a little different because I think that one came out like completely separate from any campaign. It was more of like a memoir. Okay. And, you know, I usually don't read po- books by politicians at all just because it doesn't super interest me. But, you know, like I think of that one and I think of like especially Barack Obama's book that came out, what, two years ago or something. Yeah, like, Promise Land. You know, whatever you think of the book, it's not campaign literature in the way that other books these guys write is campaign literature. His like that was just a memoir he wrote. Like he's not campaigning for anything. Yeah. All right. So now that you outed me for buying the courage to be free, um, <laughs> let's have the courage to get into the substance of this this speech here. So DeSantis essentially came into California to rake it through the coals. He took a ton of shots at Gavin Newsom as well as blue states like. New York and Illinois, in addition to California, their their governors and how basically the woke left is taking over these states are in chaos and Florida is way more successful than them because of how unwoke they are and because of his leadership. I just thought as I was listening to the speech, like even if I agreed with the guy, I don't know if I'd be cool with him trashing my state that much. You know, like if he, if he came to our state and I was all about him. But he was just like, New Jersey sucks because of this, because of that, because of the other thing. I'd be like, oh, hold on. Take take it easy on Jersey. I want to vote for you, but take it easy on Jersey. That's where I live. But he trashed California. He said that Americans, by and large, are in the process of voting with their feet. That happened in a while. And what he meant by that was they're migrating to Florida because blue states suck and they're too woke. He talked about how dangerous it is to believe in science and Fauci. Some quotes that I, or some phrases are that I really liked that if he wrote or a speechwriter, I think he should keep using them because I get a kick out of them. He refers to Florida as a citadel of freedom. I don't know what you think of that, but I see a lot of, you know, restriction of freedoms taking place there, but it's a citadel of freedom. He would not let it descend into a quote, Fauciian dystopia, which just as a guy who loves the way that the English language is constructed. I love that. And he also talked about rejecting the biomedical security state. So he's got some dystopian language built in. I think that'll be great. Like we said, fear is something that activates people <laughs> and drives to the polls. So those are good. Fauci and dystopia. How about that? I really wonder how all of this stuff is going to play because the Republicans really have taken this whole like Fauci COVID thing and they've really run with it. And I think there's a number of issues that they've done this on. 
And I think one of the problems that they're going to run up against, and I think they ran up against it in 2022 as well, is that these things are over. They're done. There's no lockdown anywhere in the country right now. All schools are back in session. All businesses are back in session, except for the ones that have chosen to be remote. And so the game of politics is always about picking up those like uninterested independents. And if I'm an uninterested independent, like I'm just going to be like, okay, like, you know, I mean, it was stupid that we closed down, but like my state's not closed down, you know, like because no one's state's closed down. And I think it's the same thing with defund the police. It's the same thing with Black Lives Matter. Like these movements are over. And I don't know if you're winning any voters over by talking about issues that don't exist anymore. I think he might just be trying to make it last because a lot of the people who put these lockdowns in place and did all these things are still in high positions of government. So it's all the more reason to get those people out because they don't respond to crisis correctly, which is when there's a pandemic, keep businesses open, keep schools open, make people still go to work and uh, give them the freedom to get other people sick with COVID, which they might transmit to somebody and kill them, or they might die themselves. Um, So there's that. And then there's also the fact that COVID cracked open a lot of things regarding school because a lot of parents got more involved in school because the kitchen table was the classroom and they could hear exactly what the teachers were saying. And a lot of people in Florida took issue with what was going on in the schools. So I think that served as COVID kind of served as a springboard for him to talk about a lot of the things that he had already been talking about with more urgency and potentially accomplish more when it came to education. Because of course, in the Florida legislature, Republicans hold super majorities in both houses. So they can actually get stuff done regarding education as well. Yeah. And I I think that's broadly the reason, even for Republicans nationally, all of this stuff, you know, COVID, Black Lives Matter, defund the police, all the stuff I was talking about, they were pretty good winning issues for them, you know, and I think people forget, even though Donald Trump lost in 2020, the Republicans did really well, right? Like they pulled out enormous numbers of people. And particularly for Ron DeSantis, this was an issue that has been defining for him. So I understand that he wants to keep playing off of it because it is his thing. I just wonder if it'll work because I, I, I don't think it really is affecting people's lives anymore. You know, if you don't want to get a vaccine at this point, you're not getting one. Um, and the the issue has not fallen in favor of like the really strict vaccine mandates. You know, your your boss cannot or, or I guess the government rather cannot force you to get a vaccine. I don't know if there are weird things where your boss can fire you if you're not vaccinated. I know there there are some things, but I don't think your boss can. And so I just I just wonder who's getting affected by this anymore. Whose schools are locked down? I just I, I don't know that it's going to affect anybody. Yeah, I, I do think down the road, though, it's dangerous. This anti-science logic that he's kind of espousing is still kind of having effect. I mean, we see a resurgence of measles. I think we've even seen a resurgence of like polio in some cases. Um, so I don't think the anti-vaccine culture is a good thing to foster and allow it to spread um, because that could lead to diseases that we really like pretty much got rid of coming back and doing serious harm to children, which is awful. Yeah. And you know, that is one of the really big issues for sure. And it's the demographics of it are very interesting because it used to be the case that anti-vax sentiment was kind of bipartisan. I actually kind of talk about this in my state of the field for, I guess the listeners, but 
but it used to be kind of bipartisan. Like you had right wingers who were really anti-government and they didn't like vaccines. And then you had left wingers who were kind of like anti-establishment hippies. And they also didn't like vaccines and they would lean into like all sorts of alternative medicine, crystals, all that nonsense. But what happened under Trump is everyone who was anti-vax became right wing and they became Trump supporters. And then from there, like the base of anti-vaxxers in 2020 just kind of like grew enormously. And, you know, it's partially because Donald Trump was very anti-vax before his administration produced the vaccine. And then now he had to defend it because he was a thing he did. Um, And of course, he got COVID as well. Yeah. Could have. Yeah. But, you know, but, you know, before uh, that, he was super skeptical of vaccines. He was constantly talking about how vaccines could cause autism and like sharing these like bullshit studies about it. And, you know, that led to the vaccine movement kind of rallying behind the Republicans and now growing exponentially in 2020. And yeah, it's a really concerning trend. And Ron DeSantis is I think much worse on this issue than Donald Trump, because Donald Trump is at least out there saying that you should get vaccinated and that vaccines are good for you, even though he's saying like, well, oh, it shouldn't get mandated or whatever. Whereas Ron DeSantis is like pretty explicitly anti-vax. Yeah, definitely. A few more things that DeSantis said regarding education, that that was kind of really where I started taking notes with the speech, is he, of course, really wants increased parental involvement in exactly what is taught in schools. He's big about school choice. He was bragging about how a lot of kids are able to, and parents are able to choose to send their kids out of district, which I kind of wrote in, in our notes, like, I'm, I'm not sure if that's something to brag about. Kind of whittling away at, at America's public schools, at Florida's public schools. Um, and then, of course, he talked about combating this partisan agenda of the teachers' unions. And Increasing teacher salaries, but not by empowering the unions. So he seems to want to bust these teachers' unions. And he says this constantly. You know, he stands for education, not indoctrination in our schools. So I took that to mean that DeSantis gets to decide what way the kids are indoctrinated, not this woke radical left. Yeah. So a few points on this. Republicans. This has been a big thing for them for a long time, right? School choice. And I've actually a couple of things to say about this, but but first I I this is another one where I don't know how much of I don't know if it's as winning an issue as they think it is. And I think it it's it's good for a certain base of the party, but you know, they're like most people in this country are happy with their school. When you ask them about like a very broad question of like, oh, are America's schools failing? They'll answer that it is. But when you ask them about their school, they're usually pretty happy with their school. Not that's not to say that, you know, our schools are perfect, but like, you know, we still we still have a lot of issues, but but a lot of people are happy with their schools. And so, yeah, when you're pretty explicitly going after public schools, I don't know if it actually plays well, but, you know, for a long time, Republicans have thought that it will. And I wanted to say one other really interesting thing that I've learned recently is, and I, I know I've talked to you about this guy, but there's this guy, Christopher Rufo, who became very famous when he went on Tucker Carlson and said a bunch of things about CRT. And then he became like Trump's favorite academic of some kind. He, Trump started like touting a bunch of his talking points about CRT. And that's pretty much how we got started on this conversation. I mean, he's been the architect behind a lot of Florida's policies. He's worked closely with Ron DeSantis. And he has spoken at a conference. He's a very interesting guy. I've listened to a lot of interviews with him. Because he will say the quiet part out loud if you get him in the right context. He'll explain to you why he does the things he does, what his goals are, 
that sort of thing. And he has this famous quote that he gave at like a some sort of conference of some sort. And he says, um, in order to get universal school choice, you have to start with universal uh, distrust. And so we have to make parents distrust their schools, essentially. I think it's really interesting to hear that coming from the anti-CRT guy. And it kind of gives you a certain sense of what maybe the purpose of that whole rhetoric might be. It was a little bit long-winded, but... <laughs> wow. Yeah, I hadn't heard. That's that's quite disturbing. Yeah, we'll have to talk about him on another episode because, again, like, I think he's a big part of all of this, and I think he's a very interesting guy. I'll have to look into him myself because a lot of the stuff um, that I've heard about him, uh, you've told me, so I'd be interested to look at some of the stuff that you're talking about because, yeah, that sounds pretty pretty brutal, but I guess the honesty that we that we need. <laughs> so, But what what yeah. I don't like, though, is these claims that he'll make uh, DeSantis that are just meant to shock. And you just wonder like if you were able to pull him aside and be like, okay, show me exactly where that happened. Exactly. I want to see it. And I want to see that it's not an anomaly. I want to see that it's developing into a trend because that seems to be what you're implying. Like he claimed that there are pornographic books in classrooms of 10 year olds. He claimed that in second grade, there are teachers telling kids that they can choose what gender they want. I mean, elementary school teachers are so panicked throughout the year with just how much curriculum they have to shove down kids' throats in the little time that they have with them, while the kids are also developmentally, like literally learning, like conceptually math, conceptually the English language for the first time, which I can't even imagine how challenging it is to teach. I'm not quite sure where the time is where they sit at the car the, the the carpet or the booger rug, as we've said in Bobby Kennedy, and say, okay, everybody, what's your gender today? Where's that happening? Yeah. I, I don't I don't quite understand. I mean, this is the classic thing. I'm I'm sure if people know teachers, they've kind of heard it, but in you know, you're a teacher, I'm a former teacher. And if if I could have at the time brainwashed my kids, I would have just brainwashed them to learn physics. I wouldn't have bothered with any of this gender nonsense or like CRT. Like I would just brain I would just like convince them to like remember a fucking equation or like know how to actually do a little bit of physics. I would have just taught them my subject, you know. But obviously, um, I guess that's yeah. My kids would um, walk out loving whatever. Frankenstein, loving Shakespeare, loving Langston Hughes, and loving to write and reading. Not because they have to, but because they want to for pleasure. Those are those are the ways that I want to indoctrinate America's students. But I, yeah, and I think if I can say this briefly, like I think this is also the just I think this is the problem of our age in a way captured in this one particular issue, because I think what happens is a lot of people see these videos online and the things that happen in the videos are genuinely very objectionable. You know, it's like it's like teachers talking about their sex lives or something. And it's like. You know, if that happened with my kid, I would be super upset. Like that's that's not appropriate at all. And you know, and I'm sure any school district, I would hope, is going to deal with that pretty seriously. But the problem is, like, that's not happening in every classroom, right? Like, just because you saw a video on the internet doesn't mean that's a good sample of the entire school system. Um, and I think that's what's at issue here. Is like, yeah, there are these examples that are objectionable, and I don't know about the specifics that DeSantis is talking about. But I think you know, that's that's kind of like the big issue is like. I think we need people need to like sort of stop extrapolating from like shit that they see on the internet because there's always crazy people in the world. And if you're looking at the internet, you're always going to find them, you know? Yeah. And then the last thing before I get into the kind of indirect ways that he 
took some jabs at Trump. He also talked about going after diversity, equity, and inclusion in higher education in pursuit of more merit-based acceptance practices, um, which is incredibly problematic. He kind of couched it as, look, I want my doctor who works on me to be working on me because they're the best and they deserve to be a doctor and they studied hard and that's why they're they're there operating on me, not because some school needed to fill some racial quota. So he tried to make it seem like a good thing as opposed to the discriminatory racist thing that it actually is. I mean, those are dangerous things to start striking down. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, this rhetoric is, I guess, classic from Republicans, this sort of like merit-based thing. And I, and I always say, like, if, if, you know, we're going in on merit-based, I've always wondered why it has been a thing for the Republican Party to reject so many uh, students from foreign universities, like from f- foreign countries coming to our universities. Like, that's a really, uh, that's something that the Trump administration cracked down on very hard. And it hurt a lot of people's ability to get an education here. And if you're concerned about merit, why is the nationality of somebody or the country that they were born in relevant if merit is what you're after, because obviously merit is not something that's related to where you were born. Right. And, and of course, also because merit is something that I'm hearing thrown around by Ron DeSantis when it comes to immigration as well. People should be accepted into this country based on what they can offer to the country. Well, what's more promising than a young med student coming from another country who's been busting his, her, their ass yeah. their whole life to get on this track to become some kind of specific, you know, surgeon that, that, that we need, you know, I mean, yeah. what's more important than, you know, some foreign student who might down the pike find the cure for cancer and is showing a ton, a ton, a ton of promise, but they're just not from the U S. So it's, it's, it's frankly, it's, it's annoying. It's racist. It's hypocritical. And it just, it just doesn't stack up. I don't, I don't like this whole merit-based thing. And also, Ron DeSantis's great grandmother wouldn't have gotten into this country if it was merit based because she didn't know how to read or write. I guess we talked about that last time, yeah. We did, yeah. And I mean, it just takes away from, I mean, these people want to bring America back. I mean, they talk so much about how we should teach so much more about the founding fathers and only say positive things about them and teach about the Constitution and all these things. Well, what happened to those lessons that we got in elementary school about Ellis Island, about people who, and we went and we, I took a field trip to Ellis Island. I think you did too, where you could pick up that phone and listen to recordings of immigrants just emotionally talking about what it was like when they saw the Statue of Liberty for the first time and how they were fleeing from things like poverty, war, famine, whatever it may be. And they were here to make a better life. And then they did, and they contributed greatly to this country. Like what happened to, that's America. That's America. Yeah, I agree. And I think to me, like when you talk about, you know, all these, um, you know, not that I, I go with like American exceptionalism, but I would say that like, this is my form of American exceptionalism. Like the one thing that I think America beats all other countries at is this is the one country, like our country is, is more favorable to immigrants than other countries. We take in way more immigrants than other countries, places like Norway, Sweden, Denmark that, you know, are often touted as being really successful countries. Like they're super anti-immigration, at least comparatively to America. And, you know, I, I think it, you know, it'd be sad if that's the type of thing we turn away uh, or that we turn away from, you know, because I think that is one of America's strengths is this is a country where we have all kinds of kinds because we bring in people from all over the world and we give them a shot. Absolutely. 
I think we'd be failing to do our jobs here if we didn't track every little Don on Ron, Ron on Don violent act that takes place here. Of course, just through smack talk, you know, (laughs) but I want to see what you think about two things that DeSantis said in this speech and that he said on other occasions too, that could be seen as taking jabs at Trump, but he's not naming Trump. He's kind of by what he's saying, implying that, well, Trump is doing the opposite. Um, And the first being that he says that when it comes to him and the way that he does things in Florida, there's no palace intrigue. He says there's just surgical precision in how he gets things done. He just has this laser-like focus on what needs to get done and he does it. No drama. So that that's that's more or less one of the things that he said. So what do you think about that? I mean, could that be interpreted as a jab at Trump who's facing multiple indictments at this point? He you know, stole freaking classified documents, was responsible for an insurrection at the Capitol and is still talking shit. I mean, I think so. I think that's definitely meant to be a direct call out. But of course, I think the the difficult part about it from Trump's angle is that if he admits to it, right, if he's like, oh, Ron DeSantis is calling me out, then he's kind of admitting that there is this palace intrigue about him. But and, you know, that's I guess that's Ron DeSantis's angle, right? It's like I'm Trump, but without all the drama. Yeah. And then this second one is one that I think he really could get a lot of mileage out of when he talks about how in his election for governor in Florida, he freaking destroyed, especially so in comparison to how a lot of other Republican candidates did, namely the MAGA lunatics that Trump nominated for seats in the Senate. So that I think is definitely one that he he could use to kind of take Trump to the cleaners. Yeah, and I heard this said from somebody, and I thought it's interesting. That, you know, I didn't know, I didn't think of it, but it's true. Is Donald Trump's record is about on par and actually a little bit worse than Jimmy Carter's, right? And Jimmy Carter is someone we think of as somebody who, like, he came into office, things were kind of a mess, and then like the Republicans just took him to the cleaners for the next like twelve years, I guess, with Reagan and Bush, and like that's about what Trump's electoral record was. Except, you know, I guess maybe. Uh, the Democrats didn't get as much mileage out of it, but I guess we'll see. But like Donald Trump won one election, barely, and then he lost the next one. This is not a winner. You know, I'm sorry. And then he nominated a bunch of candidates in 2022, and they all totally bombed. So yeah, I think that's going to be Ron DeSantis's angle is I'm actually a winner and you're not. Yeah. And then maybe when Trump- hurt Trump's feelings <laughs> pretty bad. Sure, sure. And when Trump ultimately backs away from these candidates that he himself nominated, DeSantis could even bring up, look, look at this guy. He won't even stand by the people who he claimed were right for their states who were going to win, that he endorsed, that he gave all of this, well, not money to, but all this lip service to. He won't even stand by them because they lost. So I don't know. I don't want to give DeSantis any ideas, but maybe he could use that too. Yeah. If DeSantis is listening, yeah, there's some tips strategy-wise for you. Yeah. And look, I mean, he's planning. I mean, in addition to talking to these two people who were, quote, familiar with his comments, but are remaining anonymous, who he told that he's planning on running, which to me means nothing. Um, recently, a pro DeSantis super PAC form. So that does mean something to me because now we're seeing the money start to amass. I mean, he already does have a lot of extra money in the bank from his run for governor, the reelection campaign. But this super PAC form is called Never Back Down. It's led by Ken Cusinelli, 
who served as the director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services during the Trump administration. So this is something that is definitely concrete, definitely can look at that and be like, all right, this guy's planning something. It's not likely, at least from what I've read, to expect to hear any kind of a announcement from DeSantis, at least until the end of the Florida legislative session, which is in uh, May. I believe May 5th is the day that it ends. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? When money's on the table, this guy's running for sure. Like now there's money on the table. He hasn't declared yet. He hasn't said anything yet, but he's going to throw his hat in the ring eventually for sure. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like he needs to. He's getting all the free press coverage he wants. So he'll do it when he's good and ready. And I think that when he rolls it out, he'll have a good plan for doing so. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about the Florida legislative session then, because the subheading of Rhonda Sanders' book, The Courage to be Free, is Florida's blueprint for America's revival. So I think that that means that we should look at the Florida legislative session, not just for what it means for Florida and the fact that the legislature is so predominantly run by Republicans that a lot of these things that they're proposing may well get through, but also that I mean, DeSantis himself is saying that Florida serves as this model for America, or it should. And if he's president, he will look to make that happen. So that kind of makes me want to study this legislative session a little bit more. So what are some of the major things that we should be looking out for when it comes to this legislative session? All right. So we'll kick this off with education, I guess, because that seems to be DeSantis's bread and butter. And just a I'll just run through kind of a list of, of things, and then maybe we can dig into some of them. So we've got term limits for school boards, county commissions, a teacher's bill of rights, banning study of critical race theory, gender studies, intersectionality in colleges and universities, raising the mandatory school age to 18, banning so-called political loyalty tests for higher education, banning use of pronouns different than those assigned at birth, redefine what curriculum says is sex change how union dues are collected for public school teachers, expand school voucher programs in Florida, and ban TikTok at Florida schools, which, you know, as a for- for- as a former teacher, I'm on board with that one. Yeah, let's definitely get rid of TikTok. That sounds yeah. good. I know they're even talking about getting rid of TikTok as far as government officials being on it, and I think that is good too. <laughs> Because uh, Congress want to ban it completely. Yeah, I mean, and I don't. I I think that might be a good thing. I mean, China's not exactly a staunch ally at this point. That might actually become an ally to Russia. So, and, and there's some real concerns that China's spying on us with, with that, right? Like they have all that data. Wouldn't be surprised if they were using it for something. It's a real concern, I think. Yeah. So I, I think there's something to be talked about there. Why wouldn't they? I mean, maybe the balloon is just kind of a false flag because we were we were yeah. maybe getting a little close close to figuring out TikTok. So they were like, our oh, crap, send a balloon out. Yeah, but make them think that that's yeah. how we're uh, getting our surveillance done on them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I think uh, we've we've kind of talked about this. Some of these things, at least a few of these things, are not too bad. Like term limits for school boards. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I don't know about you, but uh, what was the other one that I was like kind of okay with? Oh, raising the mandatory school age to eighteen. I think that what that would essentially do is just make it so that you can't drop out under the age of eighteen unless you have your parents' permission or something to that effect. So that's another one. Not really a big problem with that. I think some of the more dicey ones are banning study of critical race theory, gender studies, and intersectionality in colleges and universities. So I don't know if we wanted to touch on that one, because that's going to be definitely a little bit of a a dicey one. Yeah, definitely. And also the banning people from using pronouns other than the ones assigned at birth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of controversial ones. I was just picking out one. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I would say that they all 
really don't sound that great. I mean, it's just a disavowal of people's identity. And um, I think there's just such a, such a stark lack of, of empathy there of wanting to try and understand the experience of, of people that are different from you that it's, yeah, it just sucks. Yeah. And I, I think with the uh, critical race theory, gender studies, et cetera, you know, whatever it was, I can empathize with people who are saying like they have problems with those ideologies simply because there are ideologies that I have problems with. But I think it's just very strange, the idea that you should ban it from being taught at the college level, you know, because colleges ideally should be these places where we're discussing the big ideas of the day, right? Like we should be discussing all of these isms, right? And like sort of figuring out what's true and like looking through all these different lenses. And it seems very strange to me, unless you are afraid of the truth, that you would want to just ban outright the discussion of these ideas. Yeah. And if you want to talk about the beauty of freedom, you have the freedom not to take that class, not to sign up for that major. Right. Yeah. And, and like, not that I agree with it, but that's why I, to a certain extent, I like understand why it's dicier at the public school level, because, you know, school is a mandatory thing that you, you have to go to school, but, um, like at the college level, yeah, just like, don't take the class, dude. Like, (laughs) yeah. My concern also is that he's just looking to consolidate control over all facets of education in the state. I mean, when it comes to uh, the state's public universities, the board of governors, they oversee the appointment of the, it's, it's 17 members and 14 out of those 17 are appointed by the governor. So you just hear these things he's saying, and it just makes you think, well, he is consolidating the power to, to get this done as far as the things that he said he's going to do that he hasn't done already. Yeah. And I think that's part of it, right? As uh, Republicans realize that for a long time now, Democrats have been like the winners on the education issue. Democrats are on the side of the educators, like that type of thing. And it it seems to be their winning issue. And Republicans have sort of found this way that they think they can win that issue back. And that's part of what this is, is is just trying to sort of fight a war and and bloody the other side's nose a little bit. Well, we're definitely going to get a lot more in education throughout the course of this whole series. Why don't we talk about what they're going to be talking about in this legislative session with guns? <laughs> yeah, so some interesting things here, right? So uh, there's a public safety reform package on the table. I don't know the specifics of that in front of me. And then we're also talking about permitless carry, which I was a little bit surprised to read, although not that surprised. And then background checks for ammunition. So those are the gun control, gun rights issues on the table. Yeah, and, they, and it seems like they kind of merged the issue of creating a more standardized and efficient school threat assessment process with this whole expanding guns thing up to the point where not only are they talking about permitless carry, but they're talking about arming school district employees. So that that one is a little bit terrifying because I am not one to think that adding more guns to the equation will solve the epidemic of school shootings in America. I think it would only add to the epidemic. So I've showed you this meme before, and I think it's hilarious. I actually can't find it right now, but I I roughly remember it. So, you know, I saw this meme where this guy was essentially like, as a teacher, I can't wait for Florida to give us guns so that none of these pussy parents can stop me from teaching CRT. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think, you know, it's a meme, obviously, but I think it's a really clever portrayal of the issue, right? Because there's this weird contradiction here where on the one hand, Republicans want to say that teachers are 
communist plants that are trying to brainwash your kids into being like race traders who hate white people. Hate America. Being gen- yeah, being like genderless, like gays or something. But then on the other hand, like we should give those people guns. <laughs> like it's just such, I don't know how anyone can square that circle. I, I'll tell you, I mean, it'll probably do wonders for the teachers unions. I mean, when they don't get what they want, they'll just become militarized. Yeah. <laughs> they'll just be an armed Jesus. camp. You know, there won't be like putting, you know, little, little picket signs outside of your yeah. house, you know, supporting the unions and, you know, supporting like, you know, agreeing to contracts. It'll, it'll, it'll just come down to a shootout. The Florida teachers union storms the Capitol. Yeah, the the, the go- storms the governor's mansion. So demand demands expo markers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm. I mean, look, people are teachers are sick of spending their own money on their classrooms. They should have bigger budgets so that they're not yeah. buying their own stuff. And look, if they got a if they got a Glock and some ammo, you know, they can uh, maybe they can change some minds about uh, who's fronting the bill for for new pencils when they need them or textbooks that are way out of date. I don't know. Yeah, and for the NSA agents listening. This is a joke. Yeah, absolutely a joke, um, <laughs> and ultimately uh, terrifying. Were this were this to be a reality, and I really do not think that it would go well. But yeah, I guess uh, on the issue of permitless carry, I always think this is an interesting one because you know the the general talking point from Republicans is that you know we want we don't want to take guns away from good guys. We want to take guns away from bad guys. But it seems to me like these kinds of things they almost ensure that guns are going to be in the hands of bad guys, right? Like that's, that's almost like explicitly uh, the purpose, but you know, I don't know. And then there's one more thing that I thought was interesting. I guess they're looking to take a bill into consideration regarding making it easier to successfully sue media organizations for defamation. So Fox news would be destroyed. Um, I'm not sure if he's aware of that. So, I mean, this one, you know, I think it could be a real slippery slope if you're not careful with it. Yeah, I think this one's interesting. And I mean, I think I, I don't think it's that difficult to understand the reason. You know, I think the reason is just that the Republican Florida legislature wants to be able to go after some companies that they don't like. But it's, you know, it's the classic case of like blindsiding the fact that your enemy could use this weapon against you. Right. And I'm surprised that they don't know this, considering the fact that this was an issue for Donald Trump, that he really wanted to loosen up libel laws so that he could sue journalists who lied about him. And it's a good thing for him that he didn't because when Dominion voting system sued his ass, like he would have been totally screwed and he might, you know, he might still be screwed or I guess, I don't know if he's being sued. It might just be Rudy Giuliani and Fox news. I'm not sure, but like all these allies of his would have been totally screwed if he had actually reformed libel laws. And so, yeah, it's interesting to see this happening. Yeah, it really is. And that Dominion versus Fox case is a whole interesting study in and of itself because Obviously, you see somebody taking down Fox and you're like, oh, the enemy of my enemy. But when you think about the long-term repercussions were Dominion to win, well, then you kind of have more of an interesting equation to kind of ponder. So it's it's interesting stuff. Um, I think maybe you and I should consider doing less research for this series just because it takes a lot of time and just talk as much smack about DeSantis and post it everywhere we can because I think if he sues us, that would be big for us. Yeah, that's true. It, that might hurt fin- it might hurt financially, but if we're looking to bring yeah. listeners to this, then um, yeah, I think just, I mean, what do we have like 20 pages? Scrap all the notes and let's just talk trash. Yeah, that's true. It seems like it might be really good for our uh, brand. Yeah, It seems like so. when people get canceled immediately after, their following explodes <laughs> and they yeah. wind up on Joe Rogan, you know, so maybe we should go for it. 
maybe just next time just write a couple of your mom jokes about DeSantis, you know, we'll just we'll just spam them out. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well look man, Florida's where woke goes to die, but um I think that I'm uh I think I'm done <laughs> talking about DeSantis for this episode. Yeah, you know, I, I uh, myself I can only tolerate so much of it and I'm sure, you know, you it's even harder for you considering you have to go home and read his book. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you what, why don't we keep our ear to the ground and uh, we'll look to report back when we hear some more important stuff about DeSantis. We'll keep an eye on this Florida legislative session, see how this book tour wraps up. And uh, if you haven't already checked out the finale to our Bobby Kennedy series, check it out. We are now proudly finished with one whole season of the podcast and we will be starting season two before you know it. So thank you for listening to episode two of Florida Man, Ron DeSantis. We will check in with you next time. See you later, folks. Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us. Leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. And if you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show, and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old-fashioned memes. Follow us on Facebook as well if you're a Facebook person. Just type The Almost Presidents Podcast into that search bar. And lastly, you can write into the show. Our Gmail is the Almost Presidents Podcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description.